Well, I'm going to kind of jump right in. I just want to make sure that we're able to get through all of this on time. I actually have an end date for Colossians. I know, I know that was very, very risky, but uh, I, I needed to do that. We've got um, some other um, people that are going to be teaching, some other messages, and um, Easter coming, and things like that. So I need to, I need to bring it to a close. Uh, but I've got so it's going to be a ten-part series. I'm on part seven. So Lord willing, I will get through uh, everything, and we'll end on time. But let's uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians. We're going to have a lot of scriptures today. Uh, for those of you who don't know. Uh, we've been going through the book of Colossians, and this has been uh, a great a great series to just dig in to this letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae uh, and all that he had to say to them to encourage them, um, to um, exhort them, warn them, um, correct them, and all of the great stuff, the, the things that we can really glean from. So we are actually, uh, before I mention, I do, I do want to say, uh, I meant to give a, a, just a short update on Phil. Uh, Phil is back home now. So those, most of you know that the surgery, his bypass surgery, uh, went very well, and everything went as, as planned. Um, he did experience a, a good bit of pain. Uh, it was, it was, and, and Phil has been through a lot of things that we would consider horrendous, and he has a very high pain tolerance. So when he says that something's painful, it, it means it's, it's painful. Um, but he is uh, he's doing well. He's glad to be back home to be able to get the rest that he needs and um, some decent food instead of the hospital food. And uh, so just continue to pray for him and for his recovery now. And he's got a, a, uh, still got a good trip ahead of him. Um, for full recovery, but we're praying and trusting that God's going to quicken that process. So thank you for all of your prayers and your support for him. All right, we're now at uh, verse 16. is where we ended last week. And so we're just going to kind of jump right in to where, uh, where we were and just pick up from there. So let's Let's read verses 16 and uh, 17. Let me see if uh, I may actually have. Yeah, verses 16 and 17 says this. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now, one thing I wanted to mention about this uh, right off is Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. And obviously, we don't have, always have control over whether or not someone passes judgment on us. And so I, I know that Paul, I think Paul understands that as well. But one thing that you can take from this uh, and Paul actually says later on that we'll see later on where he says, um, don't let anyone disqualify you. So in other words, if someone is passing judgment on you in regards to some of these things, you have permission to ignore them and, and just go on about what uh, God has made clear to you. But if they're passing judgment on you about these things, uh, you just you just... Go on. Don't let that disqualify you or make you feel disqualified from what God has called you to do, I think is what Paul's saying here and what he's saying to the Colossian believers. Um, If you do need to engage in an argument uh, concerning these things or in a a, a constructive discussion concerning these things, um, just use Scripture. Talking about us today, just use Scripture to uh, help clarify some some of these things. So this first part here, um, we just did that, uh, in questions of food and drink. So Paul's saying, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, under the law of Moses, God gave, as you probably know, very specific dietary restrictions. These strict guidelines specified 
uh, what God deemed as clean and unclean, what you could eat and then not eat. He was very specific about these things. But that was from the law of Moses. That was from the old covenant. And in the new covenant, Jesus has lifted those dietary restrictions and declared that all foods are clean and acceptable. We see an example of that here in in Mark chapter 7 and verses 18 and 19. And he said to them, talking about Jesus, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And in parentheses, you see here, the, the writer clarifies, just to make sure no, everyone understands what's being said here, he puts in parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. So the Old Testament restrictions of what you could eat and could not eat, what was defiling and what was clean is has been lifted, and the Lord Jesus Christ has stated that all things, all foods are, are clean, and you cannot be defiled by what you eat. And he goes on, if you want to read this in context, to talk about, no, it's what comes out of you. It's out of the abundance of the heart that you speak, and what comes out is what defiles you. It's actually a great uh, thing to dig into a little bit and try to get a good grasp of what Jesus is saying. But clearly here, Jesus is saying the Old Testament dietary restrictions no longer apply for those who are in the New Covenant. Now, when I was, when I was in England for several years, I was always perplexed. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not just England, it's probably anywhere. But I was perplexed by the number of uh, New Covenant Christians who seemed to want to start following the Old Covenant dietary restrictions again. I was perplexed by that. And I mean, they would do this even to the extent of not partaking in British bacon. Has anyone here had British bacon? Can I tell you something about British bacon? British food is not that great. I ate it for three years, and honestly, there's nothing really to get excited about. Don't go to England for the food, except for the bacon. (laughs) British bacon is heavenly. It's wonderful. It's not like ours. What they call our bacon is, they call our bacon streaky bacon. And you don't find, it's not nearly as common over there. You have to go looking for it. They call it streaky bacon. And it's really not as good as the streaky bacon we have here. But British bacon It's more similar to kind of like a country ham a little bit, not quite as salty as a country ham here, and it's a little bit thinner cut. But anyway, it's just, it's delicious. (laughs) But some of these uh, New Covenant Christians would would want to follow these Old Testament dietary restrictions. Now, now understand that there are good reasons to um, follow certain diets and uh, not eat certain foods and to eat... Uh, other, other certain foods. There's good reasons. There's good health benefits to that. But where we have to be careful is where we turn that into a spiritual principle. And that's what often happens. Very easily you can slip into making it a spiritual thing. And the people who follow these dietary restrictions often can become judgmental of those who don't. But Scripture is very clear Uh, that all foods have been declared clean and acceptable. Now, it's fine, uh, again, for anyone to follow uh, some some healthy uh, eating habits and make those decisions, but let's not get that mixed up with what we are now no longer a part of, which is the Old Covenant or the uh, Law of Moses and the dietary restrictions that it has. But listen to what... uh, Paul has to say about this. He, he talks a lot about this in Romans. We're just going to glance in Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Weak meaning weak in faith. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And basically what Paul is saying is, listen, there, there are, this, we are in the new covenant. There are no dietary restrictions as we see in the law of Moses. Those things have been lifted. If you want to eat meat, eat meat. If you want to eat British bacon, eat British bacon. Eat pork, eat all the things that have been forbidden in the Old Testament. We are not under that law. But at the same time, don't become, as he says later on in, in this context, don't become a stumbling block for your brother who, who does not eat those things and feels like it's wrong to eat those things. We're actually to love them enough that we don't want to become a stumbling block to them. And vice versa. Those who don't eat British bacon, we will pray for you, but don't then judge those who do eat meat or pork or whatever it might be, shellfish or, you know, you name it. Don't judge them because if they have faith that it's fine to eat those things, it is fine for them to eat those, those things. And so what Paul is, is, is trying to get us to understand is we are no longer under those laws, no longer under those restrictions. However, we are under the law of love. And we are not to become a stumbling block for any of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that goes for not only eating, but for drinking. If you enjoy a glass of wine with your meal, Paul says that is fine. Now, it's another thing to become intoxicated. It's another thing to not be sober-minded. Let's not get that confused. But to enjoy a glass of wine with your meal, Paul says there's nothing wrong with the, with the wine. He will say there's something wrong if you drink it to excess where you are now no longer sober-minded. But he says there's nothing wrong with that. However, if you have a brother who does have a problem with that, then we need to consider our brother or our sister before we just start drinking in front of them a glass of wine with our meal. Because if it becomes a stumbling block for them, meaning they're offended that we would even do that, then we need to consider that and, and love them and prefer them and abstain from doing that so that we don't become a stumbling block to them, if that, if that makes sense. That's what Paul is saying in this whole passage. It's a great, it's a great chapter to read. A little further down in uh, verse 16 and 17, he says this, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom, listen to this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think that's beautiful. Well, let's move on. He says, or talking about, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Not only for questions of food and drink, but or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, these were things of the law of Moses, things in the old covenant. They had uh, all kinds of festivals. They had all kinds of new moon celebrations. New moon would mean the first day of a new month is what it's referring to. And there were several, there were things that they would do on that first day of each month. And also uh, of a Sabbath. There were, there were Sabbaths that they uh, observed. And what Paul is saying here, that these are things of the old covenant. These are not part of the new covenant. And so he puts this in the same category of, don't let anyone pass judgment on you if you do not observe these things. Now, Paul would also say, and he says elsewhere, that if one chooses to observe these things, that is fine. But to judge someone who is not observing these things, that is not fine. And we're not to, to do that. We are no longer under the law. And if, you, if you're curious about what these things are, um, I, would, I would encourage you to read Numbers, maybe jot it down. Numbers chapter 28. 
and you will get the full uh, story of what this is talking about, talking about all the festivals that they had to observe, all the new moon days that they had to observe, all the Sabbaths, and all of the uh, sacrifices all of the uh, lambs, the, the birds, all of the things that they had to sacrifice, the grain offerings, the many, many, many things that they had to observe and follow. God in, instructed them to do this. This was part of the law he gave to Moses, and he, and he instructed the people to follow these things and observe these things. But that was of the old covenant. Let's not get that confused. That is not of the new covenant. So Paul here is saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in regards to these festivals, these new moons, or these Sabbath days. Now, all of this is mainly referring to, so far as referring to Judaism. It's referring to the Jewish religion, the, the predominant religion of the Jewish people was Judaism, and it's referring to these things from the law of Moses, which they followed very strictly. And so we always need to be careful. We, it's good to, um, to honor God's chosen people of Israel and the Jewish people and to, hide the, and to hold them in high uh, esteem. But we are not to take the religion of the Jewish people, Judaism, the law of Moses and those things which they follow, and bring them into Christianity. That's not the mixture. We're not to do that. And Paul's making that clear here that... These aren't, these aren't for us now. Now, if a Jewish person who is also a believer in Christ wants to follow something, that's fine. But we talk, he, he talks a little bit more about this later, and we'll get to that soon. But Numbers 28, you might want to take a look at that. It's, it's, it's interesting to read what all these things are that he's making reference of. And then he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And you could read substance, some, in some translations it may be translated body. And what it's saying here is it's talking about a shadow. So a shadow is cast, if the sun is shining behind me, a shadow would be cast onto the floor. But that's the shadow. And what Paul is saying here is those are simply shadows of what's to come, or the substance, or the body, which is Christ. So what he's saying here is we don't need to worry with the shadow. We have the body, the person, in, right in front of us. Why would you want to observe the shadow when you can observe the actual body, person, of Jesus Christ? So, when the New Testament writers refer to a person, a place, or a thing as, as being a shadow of the real thing that has come, this is known as biblical typology. And you may also hear references to a type and an antitype. And the type would be like the shadow, and the antitype would be as of the substance, or the body in this case. So the one supersedes the other, or is fulfilled by the other. So a shadow is fulfilled by its body or substance, and a type is fulfilled by its antitype. And this is the usual order of biblical typology. So especially... Something that's in the, new, in, the old, in the New Testament, something that's in the New Testament that's also been foreshadowed by something in the Old Testament. You would have the shadow that's, a, that's pointing to the actual body or substance. Many things in the Old Testament point to Christ. Or you may refer to it as a type in the Old Testament referring to its antitype in the New Testament what fulfills it, what supersedes it. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to study. If you're interested in that kind of thing, I would, I would encourage you to dig in. There's so, so many in Scripture, in, especially that have been fulfilled in Christ, that you can look at in the Old Testament 
that has now been fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. So Paul had a lot to say um, to those who were wanting to uh, return to the mere shadow of the things that were now fulfilled in Christ. And this was actually the issue of the, church, uh, the Galatian church, the Galatian believers. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, it's a very strong letter because some of them were trying to mix Old Covenant Judaism with New Covenant Christianity. Listen to what Paul has to say to these believers in Galatians chapter 3. He says, and he's writing very strongly. Now, this is a church. He knows them. He has been there. So different from Colossae, from the Colossians, the Galatians, he feels he can speak more directly. And he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, who has cast some kind of spell on you? I was before your, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, the, the message of Christ was presented to them. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Can I, let me pause here. This is a rhetorical question Paul is asking. Paul has been there. He knows, he knows that these are true believers. He was a part of their initiation into the kingdom. And he obviously saw evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them, as we see throughout Acts, the, the tangible evidence that the Holy Spirit had been received by them. Now, Paul could not have made this argument if, number one, he had no uh, tangible proof that this had happened, and number two, that they had no tangible proof that this, is ha- this had happened. You understand that there was, they did not have the New Testament. They did not have scriptures. They had the Old Testament, but they did not have... This was a letter that Paul was writing. The the New Testament was not something they could refer to. So what Paul is referring to in his whole argument pivots upon this point. And that is, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. Paul knows the answer to that. The answer is, of course you didn't do it by works of the law. That's to say that they, they followed the law of Moses and therefore were granted or gifted with the Holy Spirit because of it. Of course not. The law cannot do that. Because we cannot... It is proven that the law is not what brings us to righteousness. So Paul's point here is that I know it, and you know it, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on you, you receiving the Spirit had nothing to do with the law of Moses. You're Gentiles. You weren't even following the law of Moses. That's not even part of your culture. And so that's why his argument is so strong here. Are you so foolish, he goes on to say, having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh or by the following of the law of Moses? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you? You do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith. So he's saying, the one who supplies the Spirit to you or works miracles among you, is he doing so because of the works of the law? Or is he doing so because of the hearing of faith, the hearing with faith? It's because of faith. Paul's whole point, and understand the situation with the believers in Galatia, is there, there are Jewish believers who are now bringing the practice of Judaism, bringing the, the uh, traditions 
uh, especially the traditions of, of, of men, and, but to traditions of Judaism into the Christian church. Even to the extent that they're wanting Gentiles to become circumcised, to be circumcised. Paul is, is very adamantly opposed to what is happening here. And he makes it very clear in this letter to the Galatians. And I would encourage you all to read, read the whole letter, but that's the whole situation. We've got Jewish believers and we've got Gentile believers. And the Jewish believers, they are Jewish believers. They believe in Jesus Christ, but they are bringing the Judaism practices and traditions that they follow into the Christian church and imposing them onto the Gentile believers. And Paul will have none of it. And he's reminding these Gentile believers, do you think that you received the Spirit because you were working the law, because you were following the law and obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You, you, are received, you received the Spirit because of your faith. So Paul had a lot to say to them. And this is a great reminder for us how we need to be careful that we don't bring a mixture in, a mixture from Judaism or a mixture from any other pagan religion and try to mix that in with Christianity. In verses 18 through 19, um, I'm sorry, there was more on Galatians that I wanted to read. Yeah, that was only one through five. Sorry. Let me go on. In Galatians, Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's saying, if you're going to follow the law, you've got to follow all of it. Every one of them. You can't pick and choose. Either you are under the, the covenant, the old covenant, and the law of Moses, or you are under the new covenant the law of grace, the law of liberty. He says, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree, on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I love, I love that. I just love that whole reminder. I love reading Galatians. If you haven't read Galatians lately, I would recommend you read Galatians. This is, it is a powerful letter. But that helps you get, uh, have a little bit of a background of what, what Paul is addressing here with the, with the Galatian believers and this mixture and what they are doing by listening or allowing this Judaism and these practices to be brought into the Christian church and imposed on them. Paul does not mince words on that. All right, verses 18 and 19. Let's go on. Let no one disqualify you. Remember we uh, said that's similar to what he was saying, let no one pass judgment on you. He says here, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. Notice the capital H, the head being Christ, from whom the whole body, talking about the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. I love that. 
So let's dig in a little bit. Insisting on asceticism. So if you looked up the word asceticism in a dictionary, you would see something like this. Asceticism is the religious doctrine that one can reach a higher spiritual state by rigorous self-discipline and self-denial. Then some uh, definitions would say um, self-degradation or self, uh, not harm, but, you know, being, there's a word that's not coming to my mind, but it's basically, basement would work. Um, you'll see that in some of the, uh, the, the definitions as well. So asceticism is the, the religious doctrine that one can reach a higher spiritual state by rigorous self-discipline and self-denial. Now, if you ever want to read some strange stuff, then I would encourage you to do a study on this. Do a study on asceticism among the religions of the world. There is some weird stuff that goes on out there. And some really bizarre ideas uh, and practices. But if you want to do a study of what Paul is talking about, of, of that we're not to have anything to do with these things that are promoted um, by others, this asceticism, uh, read some of that stuff and you'll get a better picture of what he's talking about. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no place for things like um, taking your thoughts captive, being, being disciplined about your thought life, or being disciplined about how you walk because there are, there are disciplines to that. To be a disciple is to be one who is under discipline, is to be one who is learning to follow as Jesus walked. And there's things such as um, fasting that can be beneficial. But we have to be careful not to confuse it with what Paul is talking about here. So often those who uh, promote asceticism, will do so in the form of, like we talked about, restricting the pleasures of food or restricting the pleasures of possessions or restricting the pleasures of sexual relations within marriage. Those three things are very commonly a part of asceticism. And you'll see that in all sorts of religions. And there's glimpses of it in Scripture. Now, as we read earlier, Paul addressed the issue of food. And we don't need to repeat that, but he talked in Romans 14 very clearly about the issues of food. And we have other uh, Scriptures that also make that clear, how we are not under these laws and dietary restrictions that were a part of the law of Moses and the Old Covenant. Regarding possessions, Paul uh, addresses in 1 Timothy, he addresses the rich. And he says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future." so that they may take hold of, what, of that which is truly life. I think that was well, well said. So it's not that there is anything sinful about possessions, but there is a, a, an expectation by God and that we see in Scripture of how we steward those things. We know that the root of all evil, money is the root of all evil. Money is not something that... Uh, we need to uh, love. The love of money is the root of all evil. 
And also in, in regards to possessions, if you have possessions or if you have a lot of money, it doesn't mean that that is wrong or that you are being sinful. But how, how you handle that, what you do with that is important. And we need to pay attention to Paul's words and other scriptures in the New Testament that talk about how this is handled. He also addresses in... Um, 1 Corinthians, the issue of sexual relations. Sexual relations is often something that is brought into asceticism, meaning to abstain, it's usually to abstain from sexual relations, just like it might be to abstain from certain foods or to abstain from the the gathering of wealth or, or possessions. Also, abstaining from sexual relations. I'm talking about in marriage. I'm not talking about outside of marriage. I'm talking about in marriage. A lot of religions promote this or have this as a part of, um, of their practices. And Paul addresses it very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm not going to read it um, because it's kind of lengthy, but I'd, I encourage you to go and, and take a look at it. Basically, first he addresses husbands and wives. And he, and he says to them, uh, he says to people, look, if, if you want to remain, um, he talks in, in context of all this, if you want to remain si- single, if that is your desire and you're able to do that, that's great. But he refers to, um, in the issue of, of husbands and wives, that they're not to abstain from sexual relations. This is something that was ordained from the very beginning that the man and the woman would be united and become one. That uniting process is done through the act of sex. And there is a strong bond that takes place, not only of the physical, but of the spiritual and emotional and so many things that God has designed it to do. And so that was God's original design for the man and woman who joined together in the covenant of marriage. But we have people of uh, bringing these things into the church, these things of asceticism, wanting you to abstain from them, telling Christian believers that they should abstain from these foods. They should abstain from collection, uh, from, from having possessions. They should abstain from sexual relations with their spouse. And Paul clarifies this and addresses it in in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 7, he even tells the husband and wife, look, husband, your wife, your, your uh, body belongs to your wife. Wife, your body belongs to your husband. You both have, a th- have authority over that. You both have a, a right to each other. But he's not, he's, he's making it sound like, look, this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is a united thing. If you want to abstain from it, you can do so if in agreement. But then he says, but only for a time. And then you need to come back together so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of the, of the, of the overwhelming amount of sexual immorality in this world. So Paul's saying it's okay to abstain for a time, but then come back together again. It's a, it's a way of uh, protection from the enemy coming at us with temptations. And it's, a, and it's a joint effort. It's a teamwork. It's a partnership between a husband and a wife. So Paul talks about that first in, in, uh, in the beginning of the chapter. Then he goes on to talk to unmarried, single people and widows. So to the unmarried, he talks about um, it's okay to marry. There was... Uh, teaching and things going around said that we sh- they shouldn't marry. They should just remain sing- single. And he clears that up, that it's okay to marry, that it's actually worse to not marry and to, be, to have these uh, passions and, to, and desires and not be able to meet them in a godly way. And so Paul is saying it's actually better that they marry. And then they are able to direct those passions and desires towards their husband or wife, or for widows and towards their husbands and for any single person towards their spouse. 
So he clarifies, he clarifies that. And then he goes on to uh, address the betrothed. We don't use that as much today, but we use the word engaged. Betrothed had a much uh, more significant meaning, but that's what, who he's talking about. Those who are betrothed to be married. And he says to especially the man, if, if you're okay with just remaining betrothed or just remaining engaged and not actually marrying, then fine, that is okay. But if you find yourself acting um, in an improper way towards your, your fiancé, then it's better to marry. You should marry her. So Paul is saying, no, what you are hearing from others that you should abstain from sex, God's original design between a husband and a wife, no. It is okay to have sexual relations. It is a God-designed thing. It's a thing to bring you into a very close bond with one another, and it's a thing to help protect you from the enemy. Oh, it's a great chapter. You should read it. So let's move on. The next uh, line here is, and worship of angels. So he's saying, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind. I'll just pause there. So, first of all, we need to recognize the, the very clear danger of such claims, especially from those who are puffed up without reason to be puffed up. Puffed up meaning arrogant, prideful, without reason to be. And Scripture tells us we will know them by their fruit. And so we can discern whether we need to be receiving what they're saying or being very careful about what they are saying because we know them by their fruit. And so it's not that, remember, it's not that angels or visions aren't a reality. They are. We see them throughout Scripture. Angels appearing to God's chosen people, delivering messages to them throughout the Scriptures. Very clear reality. We see visions throughout Scripture. Both of these are very real. There's nothing fake or counterfeit about the fact that there's angels and there are visions that God gives to Certain people. But we must remember that, first of all, the holy angels described in Scripture never wanted to receive worship. If, some, if a human started worshiping them, they would stop them in their tracks and say, don't worship me. I am a created being as well. However, we see a different story with the fallen angels. And Satan being the prime example and he even tempted Jesus to worship him. So the worship of angels should be a very big red flag. Now, some say that possibly they were doing this as a way of being humble, humbling themselves to say, I'm, I'm not worthy of worshiping Jesus Christ himself, or I'm not worthy of worshiping God himself, therefore I'm going to humbly submit to just worshiping an angel. Either way you might describe it or understand it, it's a very dangerous thing to talk about the worship of angels. And we've seen some of this in, in modern culture come out in, uh, from some of the movements, some of the, uh, quote, revivals that have come, uh, come and gone. Sometimes there, there are things like this that get mixed in. And it's a very dangerous thing. You know, I've noticed two environments that sometimes make room for such an error. So this is, this is what I've noticed, I've observed. 
One of them I would refer to as, I'm calling this hyper-charismatic. Now, please hear me. I am not putting a negative light on charismatic. That is a biblical scriptural word. It's talking about the, the charismata, the gifts of the Spirit. That is a good thing. We often refer to churches who believe in the gifts of the Spirit and operate in the gifts of the Spirit as charismatic churches. But I have prefaced this with the word hyper to denote that they've gone beyond what is how these are meant to be used and how God operates through them and, and through his presence in these churches to be hyperactive. And so you know what I'm talking about. And we see this. We, this one thing to keep in mind is you, you, you will only see Satan move in with counterfeits when there is the real thing. Satan has no interest in counterfeiting something that doesn't exist in a church. If you have a church that doesn't operate in the gifts of the Spirit, and the, the Spirit is not operating in, in that church, Satan is not worried about that church. Satan, Satan's not going to bother with trying to create a counterfeit in those churches. But when there is a legitimate, genuine move of God, that's when you're going to see Satan and his cohorts coming in to create counterfeits. So any move of God, and I'll say this to this church, any move of God that's bringing about a somewhat of a, um, a revival, if you want to call it, or a, a renewal, whatever, however you want to describe it, we need to be very careful at what Satan's going to be trying to do then. Now, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's a good thing when Satan wants to counterfeit what's going on. But it's a reality that he does do this, and that's how he fools many and gets many off track. And this would be the case, I think, when you see someone talking about the worship of angels or receiving visions, visions from angels or even visions from God that aren't tested and evaluated, especially against Scripture. We have to be very careful because that's how Satan gets in and he counterfeits God's spirit and God moving. So that would be one environment, the hyper-charismatic circles, where they tend to be more focused on um, just having that experience or uh, just more focused on what Paul refers to as them having a sensuous mind. It's more of a touchy-feely thing. I want to feel. Now, God, there's not, there's not, it's not to say that God cannot be felt. Oh my goodness, it's all throughout Scripture, especially Acts. God was powerful. He moved, even in the Old Testament, He moved upon people. When the Holy Spirit came upon people, something happened. It was powerful. Now, sometimes it was a result that you didn't expect. You know, look at Samson when the Spirit came on him. Or uh, look at Saul and some of the prophets who ended up stripping down naked and crazy stuff like that. But my, the point is, there was usually a tangible uh, observance of the Spirit being upon somebody. So, but these people who seek after that, that is their primary desire, especially to the fault of neglecting God's Word, our plumb line of truth. That's where you really get into danger and they can slip into error. So, that's one environment where I think this can be problematic. The other would be people in uh, environments where they, they dabble in and are open to other religions and their practices. Now, this is becoming more of, a, of an issue today. I mean, it always has been. Paul certainly is addressing it in, in some of his letters. But they usually are justifying this mixture with Christianity because of the either spiritual or physical benefits that they claim as a result. Now, I'm going to throw one out here that's going to offend many people who hear it, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I'm not going to actually expound on it because we do not have time to expound on it. 
But yoga would be a primary example of this. Yoga is rooted in. It cannot be separated from its roots of Hinduism. Now, if you've been to India, I have. I know some others here are from India. You understand the the idolatry that's a part of Hinduism. I was blown away when I was there at how um, prominent the idols were. I'm talking about you couldn't hardly go a mile down the road without seeing another little temple with an idol inside. There's another temple with a little idol inside. There's a big idol. I mean, they're everywhere. And I've got pictures from my trip one day, if I, if I teach more on this, I'll, I'll show some of those. But it's very evident, if you know anything about Hinduism, idolatry is, Hinduism has millions, they say, gods, that they worship. They will worship all kinds of gods and new gods. And Hindu, excuse me, yoga was birthed in Hindu religion. As a way of worshiping, yes, there are physical benefits, but as a way of worshiping their gods. The poses were to certain gods. Now, I'm not going to dig into this. I want to, but I would caution anyone who is dabbling in yoga. Now, you can put Christian on it. You can put faith on it. You can put holy on it. You can put all the words you want on it, but that does not change the root and origin of the practice. And God has forbidden us to take part in pagan religion and their practices. He has also forbidden us to worship him the way these pagan religions worship him. That is clearly stated in the Old Testament. It's not something that's only in the law of Moses. This is for anyone who is starting to put another God before him. So I would just, I would just really ask that you dig into that a little bit more because what you submit yourself to you are giving a somewhat some authority to as well in your life. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Let me just go ahead and bring this to a, to a close. Let's move on to the next thing. He says, and not holding fast. So, so he stated these things. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And then he says, and not holding fast to the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. It's almost as if these things are mutually exclusive. It's almost as if this first part that he describes is a result when you don't do this latter part. Does that, does that make sense? So this first part he's describing is, comes as a, uh, as a consequence to not doing this second part, which is holding fast to the head, to Christ as the preeminent God above all other gods. He alone is to be worshipped. And, and he's, Paul is saying, because they're not holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, all of us, the body of Christ is nourished and knit together. And, and that, that there's a growth that takes place, that's from God. Now hear me, I've said this so many times. I, I, I'm saying it to myself again as well. There is protection in the body of Christ. That's one of the reasons that it's so important that we remain connected with a body. Because there, we have brothers and sisters and shepherds to help protect against the wolves, against the false doctrines, against the, uh, the lies of our enemy. There's a, 
there's a protection and not only a protection that's here, but there's a building up. There's a growth that takes place within the body. And so it's always a dangerous thing to isolate yourself. The enemy always will go after the ones that have been separated from the flock first. And the last verses here says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, remember we saw that earlier, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you, here's that word, submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And notice again where Paul mentions the elemental spirits of the word of the world. The elemental spirits of the world. And Paul asks, he's asking this question. Why do you submit to these things? And that's what I mentioned earlier, that we have to remember that when we submit to something, we are giving that something somewhat some authority in our lives. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 16.6. He says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul is saying, be very careful to whom you submit or to what regulations you submit. And I would say to what practices you submit. So if you go back to uh, we'll just use the yoga example again. When you go to a yoga session, you are, you are submitting yourself to the leadership of that instructor. Now, most people don't really know the background of the instructor. And like I said, many people, especially instructors who are teaching yoga, have a very mixed background of religions or of practices, even though they may call themselves Christians, that doesn't mean that they have not brought mixture in with their Christianity. It is very, very difficult to dabble in that and not then open the door to other things of that nature. So we must be very, 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 very careful about that and who you are submitting yourselves to. And Paul reminds us very clearly in Romans 6.16 to be careful about that. Well, I got through everything I wanted to get through. Is that all right? That's good stuff and meaty stuff. But I am thankful for this letter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the, just the truth that is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Thank you, God, that you have preserved this for us to learn from, to remember, and to take to heart. God, help us to um, receive all that you want us to receive. God, anything that's not of you, I ask that you just wipe it from everyone's minds. But anything that I've spoken of truth, of your truth, then God, I ask that it would plant deep within their hearts and minds, that it would bring forth fruit, fruit that leads to righteousness. God, I love you, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see